to episode 69 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 5th of August 2019. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Hi, evening. Graham. Bonsoir. <laughs> and Will. Hello. None of that European nonsense. Oh, I'm sorry. Go on, you better get, get ready for it. It's only in a couple of months now. It's a million to one chance, though, so yeah, <laughs> nothing to worry about there. And also nothing funny at all about the episode number of this uh, this one. So later on, we'll be um, discussing something somewhat controversial. But uh, let's start with the usual KDE bollocks then, Phelan. <laughs> don't, don't sound so uh, pessimistic about this. It's always good news. It's always fun, always interesting. And that's why there's a KDE onboarding sprint report. Oh, I thought that said waterboarding sprint. <laughs> <laughs> you will like KDE software. <laughs> What, onboarding of devs or users? This is for getting devs involved, um, helping them to get started. Uh, as they say, Apple has Xcode, Windows has Visual Studio. Both of those two things, you pretty much are set and ready to go. Obviously, with um, KD, you download Qt Installer and all the tools that they're all packaged along with it. But, for instance, in GNOME, you've got GNOME Builder, which has, um, well, I don't know, I've seen it, a couple of screenshots it doesn't really strike me as that great, but it does have a nice idea in the fact that if you want to create a type of application, you can kind of follow what's been done before in a not a wizard-like way, but it's to give people um, an idea how to get started a bit easier. Um, I've seen lots of criticism about GNOME Builder, but I think it's not a bad idea to try and help people along. So, I mean, if I was like going to write a KD app, I don't really know where I'd start, to be quite honest. Um and it's all well and good presenting somebody with a load of docs. It's kind of nice to follow through with a nice simple guide, how to get going, follow how to build an application and start sort of with something useful. Um, so they worked on that and they did talk about things like most people don't think KDE is cross-platform um, and that's actually missing out on quite a lot of developers when, you know, a lot of the software is actually built for Windows and it's, you know, any Qt app is, is by default able to go on OS ten and uh, Linux and Windows as well. So they want to try and improve all that, try and get more people involved. And there's probably a wealth of developers out there that could be involved, but they just aren't right now. So, um, yeah, I think it's a good plan. And fingers crossed they get fruits from it. All right. So what about this uh, SMS in KDE Connect? Yeah, so uh, I don't know if you're aware, but if you run KD Connect and you get an SMS into your phone, it pops up on the screen on your desktop machine. And a lot of people have often said, why can't I just send SMSs from my PC? And I, I too would wish I could do that because every time I touch a touch screen, I want to fling it through a fucking wall. So uh, yeah, I'm all for that. And uh, apparently it's been worked on and they're very close to release and they hope in the next version of KD Connect that it will be there. Fair enough. And uh, this wouldn't be KDE Bollocks Corner without K-Itinerary. Yay! So uh, they've been working away on that like usual, um, and it, it continues to progress quite nicely. They still say if you've got any data that it doesn't parse properly, fire it off to them, get them involved. Um, but now they've also included things like uh, real-time information, which has gone into the, the back-end software, and they're linking with as many data partners as they can. So they can do things like tell you that the, you know, you can put in your start destination, end destination. It can plot the route all the way using your GPS uh, application like OSM and, and, uh, it can then tell you when you're or sort of delayed along the route. So it knows that you've got a ticket for a train. If that train's delayed, then it'll let you know about that and things like that. So 
it's really starting to get smart and they've been working on a few of the extra ticket formats that they had trouble with uh, especially the German high speed train and um, yeah continues to come along so uh, looking forward to it and if the Pine phone becomes my potential next new phone having KDE on it and then all of these features I'll be very happy with that Oh, well, I'm hoping uh, in the next couple of weeks to have a hands-on with the um, prototype of that, but uh, there's no guarantee of it, but you never know. So fingers crossed on that one. All right, well, um, last time we talked about good news for Blender. They were getting a big cash injection, and this time they're getting even more cash. Yeah, it looks like Ubisoft, who are another software games publisher, are joining the Blender Foundation's development fund as a gold sponsor, which I assume means they're going to provide lots of money and support. But that's good, obviously. But another, the main reason, I think, for anyone involved in gaming, and we, we ch- touched on this last episode, was that it means there's a really accessible open source point of entry for people who want to become 3D animators, games designers, um um, 3D movie CGI effects people, you know, um, Blender's just going to get stronger and stronger. And it would be wonderful if it did become a kind of de facto standard for 3D development. Imagine that, it's free, you know. Whereas before, I mean, I, I actually used to do a small company, a small 3D graphics company in the mid-90s, and we used Lightwave on an Amiga and, and on a 386 because the Amiga was too slow, I have to admit. There you go, folks. It only took 10 minutes for an Amiga thing to get in. <laughs> It's just amazing that what you can do, you used to pay like, you used to pay hundreds and hundreds of pounds of an effect that did kind of fluid dynamics. Blender does all this. I mean, I know it's 25 years later, but it's it's incredible what you can do and what you can do for free. And what that means creatively for the future is epic. And uh, so Ubisoft are going to use it by default for um, their film and TV uh, department. I didn't even know that they made film and TV, but... Um, it's it's going to get some serious use, which um, is got to be good, and also some money. It seems that things are just going from strength to strength for Blender. Yeah, and the thing they said was the biggest draw for them was the community around it and the development that was going on. So, I mean, I think that's really cool because it means, obviously, that they actually get how it works and they're not expecting some sort of amazingly corporate sort of thing to be handed to them and just work the way they want to. They're maybe keen to get involved as much as anything else. Blender's a bit of a unicorn, isn't it, in that it is becoming like at least up there with the industry standard software for 3D animation. Whereas, you know, we do have things like Arda and GIMP and stuff, but like none of them are really a, a de facto standard for um, professional creation. Um, so it seems like Blender's kind of out there on its own. I think Crit is doing well. And it's really interesting. Do you remember when Blender was a piece of proprietary software and there was kind of a... Crowdfunding. Yeah, the crowdfunding to be able to pay to... I think the... the, I can't remember the company was going bust and basically the crowdfunding enabled the software to be bought off them and released for free. And that was like a time where you realise... The thing is with 3D software, it's so expensive. It's more expensive than like... Um, the Creative Cloud Suite, it, it used to be thousands and thousands of pounds and you just couldn't get into it. That's why Blender was so important. And I think that's what's given it such great momentum, whereas perhaps you don't have the same momentum when you can just about scrape by with Inkscape or Scribus. Yeah, well, hopefully it can serve as an example and we can get some other really solid creative tools on Linux. 
It'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few months. Now they've got this big cash injection, what they start doing with it, what sort of features they're going to sponsor and those sorts of things. It will be uh, yeah, interesting to revisit this story in, say, six months' time and see, see what effect it's had. So VLC, um, there was a bit of a controversy over the last couple of weeks that turned out to be a bit of a fucking non-story. Um, basically, there was a vulnerability in a third-party library called um, libebml and um, that hadn't been properly flagged up as a security vulnerability and so in ubuntu 18.04 that didn't get updated because it's part of universe and just kind of got overlooked which is totally understandable because the dev of um, that library didn't flag the update as a security um, update and so then a researcher found that there was this vulnerability and um, got a CV and everything, even though technically it had been fixed and it was all just a bit of a clusterfuck. And um, yeah, VLC, not very happy about it. It kind of feels like this is the first time that VLC have had to deal with this sort of outrage, um, the outrage crew in the house getting upset about things, blowing these stories out of proportion. Um, you know, it's it's pretty common that this sort of story breaks. And as we've talked about over the last few months, they they do tend to get blown out of all proportion because that's what drives clicks. Um, and in this case, it, it does feel... Well, I don't think... Actually, I'm, I'm being a bit cynical there. I don't think it was driven just on on clickbait but um there are a series of mistakes like mitre opened a cve without talking to them um and then that fed into the original story and then they got published so like you say it was a non-story to start with but i think a chain of events happened in such a way that it got picked up as news people saw the uh, the interest in the story because vlc is a popular application and this would obviously generate some clicks and then it became a story and then it all got the usual treatment so it's a bit sad really well you talked about the outrage crew there well and we saw that again just last week it's not actually in the dock but with manjaro they were planning to to put a, a proprietary office suite called free office in their next release and then everyone was like hope drop hope you can't do that um and so now they've compromised on it um and obviously we saw that with the 32-bit stuff with uh ubuntu um and it does just seem to be getting more and more in open source. Just, I don't know, maybe it's a reflection of the wider world, but just everyone just takes to Twitter and other social media and just has to just be outraged about shit all the time. Mm. If it's not in all caps, I can't even hear it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's very sensitive of you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> um, right, let's move on. Um XFC 4.14 with GTK3 and everything. It's just, it's almost there. We're almost going to have it. My God, it's full of stars. Starfield. <laughs> Starfield, 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> just, just look at the features though, Joe. Look at the features. How many years and how many features? Almost the same number. <laughs> look, man, you, it's it's not about having loads of cool, shiny features. It's about slow and steady improvement on a rock-solid base. And, you know, that's what we have with XFC. And this new release, I haven't really talked about it much because I feel like, although obviously they've put loads of work into it and there's loads of small improvements, apart from the GTK3 thing, I can't really get massively excited about it. The only thing I get excited about is the fact that it's not dead. The fact that 
development is continuing and I am going to be able to continue to use XFCE, my beloved XFCE. I'm not dead. <laughs> exactly. It's only a flesh wound. No, but it's it's not even that. It's like, if you look at, I, I hate to pick on GNOME, right? But GNOME 2 was in a very mature state. It was working perfectly well. And so they decided, fuck that. Let's just completely redesign it from the ground up. And it was fucking terrible for the first few releases. I think even people who like GNOME would admit that much. And like it has improved significantly. It's still not for me, but um, it, it has improved. Whereas XFCE has these, you know, every few years it gets an update and nothing really changes. And that is good. <laughs> that is a good thing. Because it was fine to start with. <laughs> Said the saber-toothed tiger. Look, man, whatever. And the, the GTK3 thing is huge. It, it, with that comes high DPI support and, you know, just being modern, but also being traditional at the same time. So I'm not having your hate, you <laughs> fucking KDE and GNOME bastards. What happens on your inserted commas fucking food source, i.e. GTK3, is no longer fucking supported in a week? <laughs> how, how many years it'll take you to get to GTK4? Well, that is a good question. But once this gets released properly, you don't have to fucking try it out properly. And I, I will convert you. I've converted other people, you know, to XOCA. Oh, yeah, you'll totally convert me. I, geez, I can't wait to be converted. It's going to be magic. Well... I, for one, look forward to trying our new XFCE Overlord because I like F XFCE. I, I like the fact that it's relatively old-fashioned, and I look forward to trying out the new version. Yeah, it's old-fashioned, it's lightweight, but it still does the job. Yeah, and I, I do. I agree with you both, you know, Will and Joe. It's XFC. We can't, you know, it, it does what it does. It does it well and it hasn't changed. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing in the world of Linux desktop environments anyway. This is the space for it. Hello, I'd like to buy a gramophone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and you can get $50 credit with 30 days to use it. DigitalOcean offers VMs or droplets, as they call them, in data centers all over the world with really fast network and really fast SSDs. And you can choose from one of the distros that they offer, like Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, and CentOS, or FreeBSD, or you can use your own custom image. And you can take those distros and build them up exactly how you want. Remember, you've got complete root access to these. Or you can go for one of their one-click apps, like LAMP and LEMP stacks and WordPress, Discourse, GitLab. And these droplets start from as little as $5 a month, and they scale all the way up to huge amounts of RAM and huge numbers of CPU cores, so you can deploy exactly how much you need for the application that you're using. If you need more storage, they've got block storage and object storage, which is really easy to attach to your droplet and just get going straight away. They have cloud firewalls, so you can block network traffic before it even gets to your VM, amazing backups, and a great Teams feature that allows multiple people to work on one droplet without having to share passwords. So go to do.co slash LNL, get your $50 credit, and get started. That's do.co slash LNL. Um, all right, well, let, let's talk about VR news. So um, Firefox Reality is a browser designed for viewing um, on VR headsets. And also, there's this XR desktop thing uh, from Valve and Collabora, which brings uh, GNOME and Plasma desktops into VR. 
It's <laughs> <laughs> fucking ridiculous. Now, I talked about this yesterday on Linux Action News, and I was taking the piss out of Chris, and he was like saying, oh, I'd be amazing. I could have like all these monitors in VR. And I, I, it just seems fucking ludicrous to me that anyone would want to do this. I hope the file manager is like a giant chest of drawers that I can <laughs> open a drawer to look for the individual files. I know this. It's a Unix system. Fuck's <laughs> sake. <laughs> Does it make all passwords be only three letters and you have to use a pair of gloves to fly through the fucking computer? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, Graham, you actually care about VR, so defend this. Okay, yeah. So as I think I've explained before, I'm just a kid who hasn't grown up and in the 90s VR was a big thing and I still haven't grown out of that. So yeah, I do have an HTC Vive and it does work with Linux. Steam and Valve could do an awful lot more to make it work better. So Firefox, I'm not sure about. You know, you don't really spend any time in VR trying to emulate your desktop and be productive in that way. Some people do, but I don't think it works. However, the Valve Collabora XR desktop, I think, is more interesting because when you're actually doing something that VR is good at, you know, 3D modeling or design or 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 kind of visiting a 3D environment, you often need to overlay parts of your computer desktop, you know, a a single window or an application or something like that. It might just be watching Netflix while you play, you know, Euro Truck Simulator. But Windows and Mac OS don't do that very well. And at least the way that I've seen it doing in that post, I mean, it's just a plugin for Plasma, which is a great, great advert for the modularity of those Plasma plugins, whereas it needs a bigger upstream GNOME support, Linux could be at the forefront of productive VR environments where you can bring in elements of your desktop into VR. And I think that is actually a really good thing. (laughs) (laughs) And it will be in the future. Is your wife listening to this and you want to buy a a VR headset? She tries to say goodbye to me and she knocks on the door, opens the door, and I'm just sat there on the sofa in VR and she just (laughs) goes up on her own. I hear that VR filth is very good, but I've never tried that, but we probably shouldn't talk about that. But um, I I don't know, this just seems fucking ridiculous. I'm just not having it. Like, who the fuck wants to sit there with a headset on? In five or ten years, the headset will probably be, you know, so much smaller and so much lighter and so much more capable and wireless. I'm sure it will. And it's important that you kind of play with various, well, you look how long X has been around, that you play with various ways of interfacing with what will be, I think, a really important part of um, computer human interaction. I really, I'm sure of it. I think there's more chance of uh, Elon Musk's neural link thing working <laughs> than VR becoming big somehow. Oh, I think it's a certainty. I, honestly, I really do. <laughs> And couple this new VR desktops with Blender, and you can recreate Lawnmower Man whenever you feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that episode of Community where they're just, uh, if you either know it or you don't, it, it's just ludicrous to me. I just do not get this. Either I am too old or too young or something, but uh, VR to me, I just think about um, the Money for Nothing video. <laughs> <laughs> really yeah. sketchy. 3D and stuff because that's that's what I remember of it as a kid. That's what it looked like with those giant CRT uh, VR headsets that had you know like two little um, CRT tellies in it or whatever. <laughs> what a CRT strapped to your head, dear God! Imagine the neck muscles that you'd have. Yeah, how else would they have done it back then? This was like pre-LCDs, I think. Like I, I just remember enormous fucking headsets, and they've become a little bit smaller now. But until they're 
as light as sunglasses, which feels to me like 20 years away. Um, I, I just, I'm not going to use it. I agree. It's got a long way to go. But right now, the, you actually get genuine presence. You, you, you put a headset on with one of the latest generation. The tracking is, in, you're in there. You're, honestly, you're in the space that you're visiting. And while there are certain limits in terms of the resolution and, and maybe the color range and contrast, you actually can do things that you cannot do in real meat space. Mm. Speaking of mixed place, you've definitely been checking out the filth, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, um, let's fire up the fucking backlash machine again and talk about <laughs> Cloudflare and 8chan, shall we? Hey, look, I think we were perfect last time because we pissed off both sides. I think that's the uh, that's a good sort of middle ground to find. So we obviously were clearly right. Yeah, it's like the BBC. They get called the Brexit Broadcasting Corporation and then other people say... Like, oh, you're just obviously pro-Remain. And so, they, yeah, if you can piss off both sides, then you're probably doing it right. Um, all right, well, so this broke last night, um, or this morning, I think. It was when I was going to bed this morning, um, that Cloudflare have decided, um, after quite a lot of pressure from the media, that 8chan is to be fucked off because um, that absolutely dreadful mass shooting um, over the weekend um, the, the shooter w- had posted on 8chan or at least was associated with it and that's like the third time that's happened now and so um, Cloudflare originally said like no we're not going to shit can them and then <laughs> a few hours later oh, actually no we are and um, and then actually the, the hardware provider um, uh, cut them off as well so 8chan I think is down at the moment um, for those who don't know 8chan is a bit like 4chan it's like a big uh, message board forum type thing, but it's completely unmoderated. Like you can just say whatever you want, the worst racial slurs and all sorts of just anything and just nothing ever gets moderated. Stuff about XFC and things like that. <laughs> I know, yeah. You, you you can even say that XFC is terrible and get away with it. So I don't know, what, what do we think about this? It seems pretty fucking obvious to me. Cloudflare is a company, they can do what they want and HN can pay someone else. Yeah, I, I obviously I appreciate the sensitivity of the situation, and Cloudflare has got to remain impartial. But I mean, effectively, in what in what they do in caching the internet or caching the sites that are the other side of them, their the hate traffic is going across their hardware, um, and maybe they feel complicit and they're uncomfortable with that. So I can see both sides of it, and it's within their right, you know, to do it. Um, I think they did it. I. I don't even want to mention this. I was at Daily Beast last year. Cloudflare did the same thing. And Daily Beast was back up again and running very quickly on a competitor's um, product. And I'm sure, as as Cloudflare themselves have admitted, that this will happen again. Um, but they you know they just don't want the hate crossing crossing through their CPUs and their memory. And I can I can get that. It'd be interesting if HN tries to uh, DDoS Cloudflare. <laughs> Well, I did have a quick look um, this morning at 8chan to see uh, what was going on, and there was a lot of talk of that. Um, Apparently, there are pretty easy ways to do it. Um, We've seen some problems with um, Cloudflare going down before, so it it does stand to reason that they would at least try, but given that that is Cloudflare's whole business model is to (laughs) mitigate and stop DDoS is happening, it seems unlikely, but what do I know? 
Yeah, I'm trying to think of a film analogy where there's some great space battle <laughs> between <laughs> the Jedi forces. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by CDN77. Go to cdn77.com. And they are a UK-based CDN provider with an end-to-end video processing and delivery platform as their standalone product called Streamflow. They sponsor a bunch of great open-source projects like CentOS, KDE, Fedora, Gentoo, and Funtu. And one of their standout clients is the European Space Agency, who use CDN77 to deliver Hubble images all around the world. They're a real innovation leader. They were the first CDN to implement a lot of new features like HTTP2 and Broccoli compression. And they don't outsource anything. Everything's developed and managed by their own team, including their own DDoS protection. And they can push 80 gigabits per second of live streaming through just one machine through their optimizations. All their servers are running Debian, and the vast majority of them are physical machines with an overall network capacity of more than 14 terabits per second. And they've got 35 points of presence in North America, South America, Europe, Asia, and Australia, with daily peaks regularly exceeding 5 terabits per second. They've got great 24-7 live support and flexible pricing with both great value monthly plans and pay-to-go options. You can get a 14-day free trial with no credit card needed, and if you do stick with them after that, you can get a 40% bonus if you mention Late Night Linux to sales or tech support. So, for example, if you topped up by $1,000, you get $400 on top of that. I hosted the MP3 for an episode of the JRS podcast on CDN77, and it was really easy to set up and link to it, and I had no complaints about the speed from anyone. So go to cdn77.com and start delivering your content. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It's very much appreciated. Uh, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support to find out about that. And remember, you can get an ad-free feed if you pay $5 or more on uh, Patreon so you don't have to listen to the adverts anymore. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. Right, so let's have a bit of a thought experiment. Let's go into a parallel universe where Linux doesn't have a foundation and we're going to put together one for it this is something that you brought up graham and it's it's a very interesting question if you were going to put together a foundation for linux to make sure that development progresses and everything would it look any different from the one that's evolved today i think it would maybe look a bit smaller <laughs> i don't know what, what do you guys think? The Linux Foundation owns the name the Linux Foundation, which I think is a could possibly be a bit of a misnomer for what it does. And what it does is very good. You know, it supports um, corporate interests in in people who use Linux, which is absolutely the right thing to do and a, a thing that is absolutely necessary. I think it's a bit unfortunate that it owns the Linux Foundation kind of name and a brand. I mean, it didn't all, always used to be. It used to be, I don't know, open source development labs or something like that um and so my ideal isn't wouldn't necessarily replace what the linux foundation does at all but i do think there's a there's a need for a load of disparate things especially over time i've always been frustrated by the lack of central marketing or the fact that there's some central certification or kind of outreach program or even diversity that is somewhere central that's kind of maybe harnesses community but also has the benefit of some decent funding so that it can actually put things into action that people have ideas behind because that's often something we have a problem with 
Um, you know, if it could be half as well funded as the Linux Foundation, there's so much that could be done for, in, from a kind of um, a more grassroots side than the Linux Foundation does. I tried to see what the Linux Foundation did, and I thought, oh, if it could just do this, oh, hang on, it, it does that. Uh, what, what about this? And it does these. So, like things like training and um, funding development work and things like that, and it it kind of already does them. I, I don't know how how different would you make it. I don't want to say it's a problem, but the Linux Foundation charges for its training. And, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but in in doing that, it kind of blocks other people providing their own training. And so my my foundation would be a, a way of I don't know setting a standard that other other trainers could provide you know and charge for, but at least sets us an open standard that other people could use and capitalize on that kind of thing. So you said that it's used to represent the interests of the corporate users of Linux. Um, it feels to me that it's almost a bit of a corporate advertising platform that people put their logo on the website very happily. Um, obviously, I don't know what goes on inside there, what um, exactly what work people are doing for their sponsors. But it doesn't seem to do much outreach to the person in the streets, to the, the end user. And I absolutely understand why that is the case. But I think my ideal one would be out there pitching it to normal people, not just on the desktop, of course, but that would be an important part of it. But yeah, I think that there's a, a, a something missing from the Linux Foundation at the moment that they don't really go out and speak to normal people. Isn't that because it's a trade body, essentially? Quite possibly, but then the end users of the sponsors are, you know, people in the street. So I don't know, Arm, Canonical, Red Hat, all these people that are corporate sponsors. Um, you know, we we're all end users of that technology. It would be nice if somebody was out there telling people about the good work that's being done and the products that they use that are built on this. Yeah, I completely agree. It's like if if and I don't like saying competing, but these are the terms that we have. Like competing with macOS and Windows, those Microsoft and Apple has huge departments that have that function. And um, we, we as the open source or Linux community just don't have the equivalents. We don't have the equivalent central marketing and branding. Um, Linus isn't bothered about it. I mean, he's employed by the Linux Foundation and that's fine too, but it'd be great if there was some kind of central, I don't know, maybe there's a different way of doing it, not responding to Microsoft and Apple, but trying to open it up in some way that's been so successful for the source code. I was trying to think how you could fund something like this. Like I can see if I'm a company and I want to do a bit of a PR job and say, oh, look at me, I'm a gold sponsor of Linux Foundation now. I can throw a bit of money, I can get my logo up there and then I can you know, go about how great I am and feel great about myself. But if you are going to be altruistic and say training that is generic and not Red Hat specified, is Red Hat going to throw their PR budget technically into this now? Um you know, if you have something like the recent VMware kind of legal fight that they had and where very much the Linux Foundation was on the side of, surprisingly enough, VMware who paid it money and the sort of idealist sort of side said, you know, you're not sticking to the terms of GPL. How would you kind of fund something like that without the money that clearly comes from industry? Yeah, I mean, my personal thought is it'd have to steer clear of idealism if it could. I mean, just tr not not in terms of avoiding it, but just not make it part of its raison d'etre. Because, yeah, that would just be a horrible minefield that well, you've just talked about it, Software Conservancy versus the Linux Foundation and Linux Foundation, you know, possibly supporting its own members 
um, there's a huge conflict of interest. So it'd be nice if a foundation didn't have to worry about that conflict of interest because its aims were clear and not necessarily to deal with to do with uh, the, the free software side of it. It's not like I had a solution to that either. I'd just like to point out, it's not that I'd throw you under the bus there on your own. But uh, yeah, like, I wonder, would there be a, a sort of an ideal that you could firewall off a percentage of the current Linux Foundation's money to things like that and just let them have at it and say, look, if you want to be part of this uh, this organization, you must give X percent of your donation. You know, you can do all your trade body stuff here, but this percentage must go into this side over here. And that's just what you get. Yeah, or have another thing, the difference with the Linux Foundation is that ordinary members can't vote and, you know, the, this, the, the main people on the board are the, are the, the corporate sponsors. Um, so a, a different foundation can do that differently. It'd be great if like every member gets a vote on maybe where funds get spent, you know, and then the, then it's an open discussion. Yeah, but then if you gave everyone a vote, 52% of them would probably vote for something terrible. <laughs> <sighs> So here's an idea. You know how the HDMI body, whatever they're called, charge you a fee for putting the HDMI logo on the box of the product that you're selling? How about if you're using Linux inside your product and you were a member of the foundation, then you got to use that logo for free. And if you weren't, then you paid some small amount. I know that the reason that people use it is because it's free, but you know, make that amount small enough. Um, then not only would people in the street see the logo more often and understand that it was a thing, but people who were using it would contribute a small amount back to a, a bigger fund to help um, educate people about what it was. But where does that stop? Presumably you're talking about set-top boxes and phones and stuff that are using the Linux kernel. But what about every VM, you know, every container that's running Linux? Like, are you going to make them pay? Well, I'm thinking specifically about educating and informing the average end user rather than the in-betweeny bits. So I think, you know, stuff you buy in Dixon's off the shelf that's got a, a great big box, then seeing the logo there would be useful, whereas seeing the logo on, you know, DigitalOcean's website, perhaps less so. Didn't Dixon's uh, go bust about 10 years ago? I don't know. <laughs> I think they were bought by... Uh, uh, oh, Dixon's Carphone. So they're owned at Carphone Warehouse or whatever. No, Curry's, I think, PC World, whatever. Yes, we get the idea. But it's funny that at the beginning of this, I said presumably we'd want it to be smaller, but that doesn't seem to be what any of you lot have said here. My vision for, you know, a reimagination of it would be just to, to deal with the absolute core stuff, which is making sure that um, Linus and um, Greg KH and staff maintain the kernel and okay that's a relatively expensive thing to do so you'd need to have some money coming in from somewhere but i i would create something much slimmer than we have now and and leave all of the well i mean i would say leave all of the training to other people given that um, i work for a company that offers training for linux but you know leave the training and advocacy and um, you know the diversity stuff to other existing organizations and and even the legal stuff you have people like conservancy who could take care of that and i would just like to slim it down and just be you know just taking care of the the core product which is the linux kernel I'm not sure Linus would want to. I'm not speaking for Linus. I have no idea what he'd do, but I'm sure he'd probably rather be employed by the Linux Foundation. Yeah, you're probably right. But I just like simplicity. I like to have things slimmed down and 
uh, not using a bunch of resources, you know, much like XFC. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, though, there there is definitely a need for someone to provide uh, support to the likes of, say, you know, remember when we had the SSL issues, um, mm. you know, and there has to be a very large pot available for that type of thing. And I think this is where they maybe let that down. Uh, you know, I think... There's got to be someone out there who's watching things where they go, look, there's one developer run this project. This project is integral to everything. We should fund these things. And I think that there needs to be a bit more like a, um, not a charity, but a a watch guard for, for projects that are involved in the ecosystem, you know, not just the kernel itself. And yes, I know they are kind of doing that now, but I think it would have been nice had they got in there. And the way, say, even with GitHub, where they're looking to fund developers, and I know there's a lot of criticism that they're funding the developer and not the project, but I mean, why weren't the foundation in there maybe, you know, funding projects? That would have been a good place for them to go too, because they have all that money and they have it from all these companies that are, you know, using the likes of BusyBox and whatever in a lot of their projects, not just the kernel, but, you know, somewhere there has to be a sort of collection point for this thing. And it's almost logical that the kernel being the center of the OS should be the center for the collection point of it maybe. Yeah, and I think... I'd, I'd like I liked to think it could be like Joe's minimalist um, kind of foundation, but the, I guess in my idea is that it plugs all kinds of gaps that we don't have because there isn't a central corporate identity behind Linux. Um, so it plugs, you know, the, the marketing and the outreach simply because they're not there. So it's a bit of an ugly mess. But I still think it would be worth it if if it could be run effectively. I mean, it's all down to leadership, I think. I wouldn't want it to become like Mozilla Foundation necessarily. So you want to centralise power and uh, give that to faceless bureaucrats? <laughs> yeah, I, I federa- <laughs> let's federalise Linux. <laughs> so that'll be 86 days, I'd just like to point out, by the time this airs tomorrow. <laughs> uh, don't worry, we're going to get an extension. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. <laughs> going to go back on his word. On the uh, days to brexit.co.uk, I can see there's already been two of those already that are sitting at zero, and this one's at 86. So, uh, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> we're going to have a government of national unity led by the Lib Dems and the Greens. It's going to be great. Yeah. All right, then. Well, let's get out of here. Um, I'm going to have just come back from America next time we do this so uh it, that'll be fun i'll probably be all i don't know spaced out and uh, jet lagged although probably not because i generally am on american time anyway and we may or may not have uh will and graham depending on how things work out probably not for the news i don't know it's all a bit of a uh, a blur we'll see but in the meantime then i've been joe i've been Phelan. i've been graham and i've been will see you later 